0: Now we don't have any value. Hey, Langdon. Hello, Eden. How. How is it going?
1: I was in the forest and I got chased by a gnome. He was trying to play a trick on me, but I escaped him.
0: So, what's with. What's the deal with gnome Twitter?
1: It, that was supposed uh, to
0: be. That was my Seinfeld voice, by the way.
1: <laughs> it's the uh, it's the new hotness. We've all um, become apprised of. So you know the Fey folk, right?
0: Uh, sure, turns, very good friends t- of mine. I mean, yeah, t- I cannot speak ill of them, right?
1: Turns out they're not real. Gnomes are real, and it turns out gnomes no, don't, don't care that. if you speak. Turns out that gnomes don't care if you speak ill of them because they're going to play deadly tricks on you no matter what.
0: Ah, uh, I see. I... They
1: prance in the woods and then they, uh, you know, you know, Tom Bombadil, right? You know, you know about Tom Bombadil.
0: You, that he's an eldritch monster that Tolkien put into his books?
1: Mm-hmm. He was just, Wait, he was for... just going to let Melkor win if that's what yeah. was going to happen.
0: Wait, are you yeah, familiar he... with this? With this theory? Yeah. Okay, so for those listening that are not familiar, there is a fan theory. i say theory, like everybody knows it's not true, right? Uh, <laughs> it's, just, um, it's just a very funny theory that Tom Bombadil is actually an eldritch monster, like that he is the actual most evil creature in the Tolkien Legendarium, and it hangs upon a bunch of different things. First of all, his moniker his nickname is eldest um and there's also a sentence that goes tom remembers the first raindrop and the first acorn he knew the dark under the stars when it was fearless before the dark lord came from outside <laughs> uh, also like he's married to a willow and willow are like evil trees in tolkien's legendarium um he's like if you start to read the chapter with Bombadil in it with that in mind everything becomes like ironically nefarious and his cheer and joy is maddening it um, feels
1: very clear that he is going to do something vile to the uh yeah to the hobbits that then, happened upon him
0: yeah but then also think about it like the elves go back to valinor right sauron is defeated Morgoth has been defeated for like millennia and and only men and hobbits and dwarves are left in the middle of what is stopping Tom Bombadil to unleash himself upon the unsuspecting denizens of uh, of Middle-earth. Wait, but are you saying that Tom Bombadil is a gnome?
1: Yeah, that's what I'm saying, yeah. Yeah, he's a gnome. And that's Isn't that They don't want
0: contentious, I would say.
1: They don't want to unleash themselves; they want to wear their sky blue jerkins and their pointy red hats and play devious tricks on mankind like a satyr really
0: so here's my follow up question. We have already been played the, the 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 most nefarious trick that I can ever conceive, which is Twitter like that trick has already we played it upon ourselves.
1: Yeah, it's slightly bigger of a trick than Samsara.
0: Exactly. Like, Samsara is is a really cool trick, don't get me wrong. Like, good job the um, the Demiurge. Demiurge did a fantastic work on Samsara, but then Man came up with Twitter. So who really is the actual demon that controls reality?
1: He probably was baffled, the demiurge, when we made a second samsara and then willingly entered it ourselves. Because like, notably, the demiurge does not enter <laughs> samsara. He He's like, yeah. it sucks. I made it to be bad. I'm not going yeah. in
0: there. I, I'm outside of it, capital O, right? That's the whole point. Why are you going inside? No, stop, stop. <laughs> Please don't go inside, right?
1: Plato's cave, the denizens of Plato's cave making a second worse cave.
0: <laughs> <laughs> with with uh, less definition shadows, but some for some reason they prefer them. Um so th- this week, Twitter, the manifold um you know box of, of treats that is Twitter uh, unleashed second time I'm using that verb uh this episode unleashed one of its many um curses upon us. Well discourse. Capital D, trademark, registered <laughs> trademark, um, copyright. Discourse around the idea of, quote unquote, comps started to come up. C-O-M-P-S, which is an abbreviation of comparison.
1: This notion and, uh, is so dumb that it literally, my brain like locked it away to keep me safe And before we recorded, Eden had to repeat it like straight up four times for the walls to break open. And then I I let out kind of a half scream because I was like, no, you fucker. (laughs) I tried to forget.
0: (laughs) I was thinking it. So usually when people don't understand me, I'm like, oh, it's the Israeli accent. But comps is not a very uh, there's no propensity there for mispronunciation. Right. Anyway, if you're unfamiliar with the idea we're not talking about just the noun a comparison which is a neutral word, right no problems there (laughs) we are talking about the idea that authors not just of books right also like musicians and other artists it starts from a a benign idea right they operate within a certain context they operate within a certain community that has its own traditions and its own uh, mannerisms and it behooves an artist to be familiar with that community. It, it's a good idea. This is, you know, since time immemorial has been good advice. If you write science fiction, you should read science fiction. And if you play death metal, you should listen to death metal. Not because it is mandatory or important, but because it will enrich your craft, right? You will perform your craft within the context that a reader might read it in or in which it is created. There's also just
1: a classic thing of you might encounter like, oh, that's an idea I never would have thought of. I like it and I have my own little twist on it or the other version just as useful. I think this sucks. I don't want to do something like this because I don't like it very much. And those are, you know, they're good for your
0: craft. Right. But then the uh, cancerous and radioactive um, energy of late capitalism uh, <laughs> shone upon the neutral object that we just described and as it does everything twisted it into the horrifying idea that authors that don't have these comps are somehow a disrespectful of their community b unwilling to put the work in in order to succeed and see have absolutely zero chance to succeed, even if they wish to, that it is somehow a sin that has to be scolded on Twitter um, or in other spaces, I'm sure, um, by, you know, the faceless horde of people who do scolding on Twitter the world. There was this one thread that was kind of like the nerve center of this whole discourse that really went at it, right? It was very <laughs> aggressive, sanctimonious, and just displayed the idea that having comps is mandatory as some sort of universal truth, Um, Now, it might be easy to understand why Langdon and I would be, and Gareth, would be particularly allergic to that concept, seeing as this entire fucking podcast is dedicated to works of literature that don't take, you know, um, necessarily the most obvious paths and obviously can be compared because everything can be compared, but... Do interesting things with those comparisons, right, and twist and play with the tropes of the genres in which they operate, so comps are not bad, right? Like I do think it's a good idea for you to consume out of the type that you are making, but it is by no means a mandatory and be super important. <laughs> like you don't That's... you don't have to do I... it.
1: I, I loved the variation of this, which touched on, um, it's either a variation or, or the root discussion, depending on how you look at it of, do you need to read in order to write? And the answer yeah. to that question is I don't care. Um, just, I don't, <laughs> this isn't valuable to talk about, Yeah. but it turns out that everyone, every single person has not only strong opinions, but the strongest opinions I've maybe ever encountered on both sides of this, um, none of them cite anything, obviously. Obviously, if they cited something, the discussion could go somewhere. But instead, it's just, I believe you must read at all times versus other people who just as mystifyingly go, what if, say, theoretically, the Demiurge has stolen your sight, your hearing, and your sense of touch, thus prohibiting you from uh internalizing works of fiction can this person not be a writer and everyone <laughs> decides everyone assumes that everyone's completely fucking outlandish like thought experiment versions of things uh either completely validate or completely invalidate whatever is most convenient at the time
0: yeah so and he instead we, of like d- this
1: is dumb we're not we are better off not talking about this and just moving yeah. on
0: <laughs> So if if the discourse if this is the level at which the discourse had stopped, we would probably not be speaking about it right here. Right? It's just silly nonsense that people do um, on social media. But here's the it, thing: it
1: becomes <laughs> the, the frankly non-serious stuff that, like, we we in part have this podcast to have the serious discussions about literature because, good lord, there are so many unserious ones.
0: Yeah, and also I think on the on the podcast, you know, we kinda run the gamut, right? We we recognize the yeah. place of both the series and, and the unseries. Um but but here what happened is that of course, like once the original mutated idea of comps hit Twitter, it continued mutating much like a virus. Um, because that's what Twitter does, right? It like takes ideas, bad ideas puts them in kind of like a hot box where they can be fed energy and nutrients and just lets them run wild with their evolutionary paths because both sides of the equation now take a step forward. The pro-comps crowd, or rather the mandatory comp fascists, I would say, um, took this one step further to say that if you don't have comps then it is completely justified for publishing houses agents magazines and other literary outlets to shut you out with no explanation like they should not open the first page of your manuscript if you don't preface it just like your when you preface it with your name and your affiliation and your geolocation stuff like that if comps are not there they do not flip over the page. It is a mandatory um, step to be included. And, of course, the excuse is, uh, what what do you think? That agents have time. They have just time to read anything. They need, like, to know what they're about to read. And then the other side metastasized into the ultra-woke version of what Langdon just uh uh, presented which is if you tell other people to read then you are ableist um reading is something that only able people are able to do and of course the uh, interpretation of able here is wide because if someone doesn't have time if they don't have money then they're unable to read so it's also classist and so on and so forth
1: kind of uh the kind of arguments the kind of caliber of arguments all around that um yeah uh makes me long for a bullet between the eyes <laughs> like yeah. god so, when the fascists come today like, yeah. can i schedule them to murder me in my home <laughs> <laughs> so so
0: there's there's a lot of we could say and you don't need us to like pry apart those two positions because they're so blatantly ridiculous that any person that is dumb <laughs> If you have touched grass in the last five years, then these arguments will be, there will be nothing uh, appealing about them. But I do want to note something. And this is on a personal level because I actually deal with this on a daily basis because I run a music publication. And every single promo that I get includes a little thing called FFO, for fans of, right? And on its surface, it's a good idea I'd like like people, the people on the comps uh, camp say, I get around 100 emails a day, 150 emails a day. And I would say that 90% of that is music. Right? People wanting me to review their stuff. So if I had to go through and listen to every single one of them, I would go absolutely insane. And it would be just a bad time all around. So instead, they include the FFO so I can click on it only if I'd like. But in practice, what happens is that the FFO becomes a marketing tool. And then if you have one chug, then you are FFO sugar right? And if you have one wow effect on your solo, then you're FFO Metallica. And if you've ever sung about anything to do with climate change, you're FFO Gojira, and so on and so forth. Because... Now that there's a tool to save me my attention span, of course, my attention span becomes commodified and people start to um, compete over it. Now, and this is where the crux of the matter lies. All of these conversations from both sides of the equation are replicating the logic of the market. Yep. Logic that says one or two things. One, on the comp side, everything must be labeled Everything must be cataloged because when things are labeled and cataloged, they can be assigned a price. If I cannot understand something, if I cannot order it, then I cannot sell it. First, I need to label it and put a little sticker on it that says what it is so I know which aisle in the supermarket it goes under. (laughs) And then on the other side of the equation, the telling people to read is ableist camp is replicating the idea of the market that a normal exists, that normal should and does benefit from all of the privileges and the advantages that society gives them. Therefore, they are more socially mobile, more likely to hold positions of power, more likely to make more money and so on, while the rest of us who are differently abled or divergent in many different ways... They need to be, you know, we should have equity, right? They need to be assisted, but they will never be normal. They can never partake of the things that the normal partake in. Reading is for the normal. It's for the abled. The disabled are unable to read. Therefore, if you say that reading is important, you are ableist, which is, of course, patently absurd.
1: It's Oddly enough, itself a form of ableist comment, which works by erasing all of the people with I have a friend who not only is blind, but does like they do disability rights and disability uh, tech advocacy and and labor as as their job. And they read a shitload because that's that's not how things work. I'm going to go crazy. <laughs> <laughs> i just I'm going to I'm going to have to call up Veronica and be like, hey, Veronica, you know, you're blind and you read books. Yeah, the internet told me that you don't. Yeah. Yeah, because ADD you... people.
0: <laughs> yeah. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to do, I'm going to solve this. Okay. Here's the very simple solution Warning it requires you to read. Every single person that wants to do anything with replicating knowledge, creating art, and so on has to. By law, here come the Marxist-Leninist-red fascist to tell you what to do. By law, they have to read Postmodernism or the Cultural Logic of Late Capitalism by a certain Frederick Jameson. I do not understand why the Academy teaches Foucault or Derrida or anyone else in that space without teaching Frederick Jameson. It is, frankly, absurd. All those philosophers, I love Derrida, Foucault, yeah. I used to love him. <laughs> <Before> <laughs> I, read, I... I read about him, um, yep. about the person. <laughs> um, but n- none of them, and, and not even that darling of the cast, M- Monsieur Deleuze, have given an account that is so... Clear-sighted and simple to understand. It's not a complicated text about how postmodernism—that is the postmodernist situation, right? There's no postmodernist movement, by the way, Jordan Fucking Peterson. We don't—we're not espousing postmodernism. We're just describing the way things are. I find um, that
1: so fucking baffling about those people. Be like, you know, Jameson yeah. was writing about this as like the tragic condition of. Uh, it's like Mark Fisher drew from it when when writing capitalist realism, that then people yeah. turned around and said that he was promoting capitalist realism. Yeah. I, um,
0: I, hate,
1: I hate being alive.
0: Like, yeah. I hate I'm interacting with right others. Now. So this text is, is, is such a good introduction to the interplay between um postmodernism and the economic system that we find ourselves under. And the main point that it makes is that Because the postmodernist situation has effectively melted the line between um, forms of art and the barrier to making art, right? It's no longer this hallowed thing that is created behind closed uh, walls. We are somehow, we've been lulled into a false sense of security about, you know, its liberatory and its radical... um, attributes right because it's by the people right everybody's doing it everybody can do it there's no longer low and high art and so on but that's actually a good thing for capitalism capitalism doesn't like feudalism doesn't like elitism doesn't like mercantilism it needs the borders to be destroyed it needs and here comes the list. it needs the flows to go where they need to go Right? It needs to accelerate them and create those feedback loops that um, capitalism so requires. So, what it does, very sneaky, like a gnome, it hides mm-hmm. inside your head. And then, everything you do, and everything you say, and everything you create, if you don't pay attention, is just replicating the logical order, what Foucault would call the episteme of capitalism. Everything you do, basically, is a little supermarket. Right, It's a tiny little supermarket with everything on neat little rows with their labels and their prices and their assigned meanings inside this market. So maybe don't do that. <laughs> maybe think about when you demand for order and for comparison and for genres and for their strict delineation, Think about the kind of logic that you are creating. And and don't get me wrong, I love genres. Blind Guardian does not sound like Kimbra <laughs> or Morbid Angel for that matter. The genres are important as modifiers, as descriptors, as shifting boundaryless categories, and not as fucking guides to how to live and what to read and who to talk to.
1: It reminds me of the whole, you know what, you know what discussion makes life worse, Eden? (laughs) I'm I'm the joker right now. Um, The whole grimdark versus noble bright.
0: Oh, God. Why would you? uh... Once more. Why why, why would you bring that up?
1: Opening a doorway of pain. I'm not even going to break it down. I'm just going to say everyone involved is a dork and has made my life worse. There's not a single thing to be gained from this. Uh,
0: Take us to music, Langdon, please.
1: (laughs) So let's free ourselves from pain. Who of us doesn't like the gentle dissociative haze of shoegaze music? Mm, Beautiful. Um, Literally just today, I found uh, this South Korean band named Paranual. Uh, found them because they have a new record that's coming out that they've been releasing singles for, and that caused me to go back and listen to their last full full length record called "To See the Next Part of the Dream." It has this very gorgeous um, for me it reminds me of Pink Floyd, reminds me of the cover of Animals, and uh, that that's gonna immediately sell me. Um, we're gonna be playing the opening track from it, "Beautiful World," just because it it immediately captures that dense cloud-like feeling of of for me shoegaze at its best there's obviously the more you listen to it there's lots of different branches there's the more electronic and dancey end like frankly my bloody valentine for the most of their career lived more in that kind of like motoric rock vibe rather than that big cloud-like one um but this sits in that other space um and not so like not so drenched in feedback that you can't make out, you know, chords or melodies. It it just feels like you're inside of this big sonic cloud, just very, very nourishing and healing, which I need after um experiencing profound mental anguish uh from reading thoughts on the internet. Um, I think we should ban thinking and being alive. Um, whatever kills us fastest is good. Uh, and Shoegaze will help me uh, reach uh, a nirvana beyond the realm of samsara uh, before my uh, pleasurable death arrives. 何聞いてんの?
0: The spirit of discussing works of art that defy easy categorization or defy anything really we have a doozy for you today first of all it has the mark of authority of being recommended by jeff vandermeer and i have to come clean and tell you that for the last six or seven years ever since i read authority basically anything that jeff vandermeer tells me to read i just go and read it and it has not failed me. Yeah. Um, I have,
1: if, if you follow him as a person, he reveals himself as kind of, kind of lib brainy and stuff like that, but good Lord, one, can he write well? And two, does he know a rack of really brilliant underrated classics?
0: Yeah. And I also think his politics are interesting because he does have that like democratic American democratic kind of tendency, but there's also like, um, like glimpses of something more radical because of his love of nature and his fear yeah. of climate change and the work that he does where sometimes he just gets fed, fed up and like, well, where, where are the AKs, right? Like it's time to do something else. Um, he's also a really nice guy. We, he recently followed me on Twitter, which was a real milestone for me. I, I have to admit um, maybe in the future, we'll talk about Elvia Wilkes uh fan. <laughs> fangirl essay anyway he also recommended uh elvia wilkes oval which is a fantastic novel that i covered on my other podcast anarchy sf um, and in general he's just revealed to me a lot of really great literature including a collection of stories called Moderan. now here's the thing about Moderan: it was written by this guy david r bunch and this guy is basically the template for unknown, unsung science fiction author that is inexplicably supported by some of the biggest names in the field. A writer's his, writer, just like we like on this cast.
1: His name um, even sounds like a fictional writer from like a Philip K. Dick book or like... hundred uh, percent. Something like that. Like he he sounds 100%. like a fake pulp guy.
0: A hundred percent. And when I say supported, I mean he was um, his biggest proponent is Judith Merrill. Yes, that Judith Merrill, a.k.a. Judith Josephine Grossman, one of the most prolific um, science fiction authors and maybe the first um, woman science fiction author to be wildly influential as a writer. She wrote for Galaxy Science Fiction, Galaxy Magazine, Fantastic Magazine, Worlds of Tomorrow, and so on and so forth, appeared you know, next to Philip K. Dick and all the other ones, Harlan Ellison and everybody that comes with that. Um, James on... Tiptree Jr., a.k.a. Alice Bradley to... Sheldon. Yeah.
1: I was about to bring that ah. up. Like on my on my edition, there is a quote. We have the same blurb... edition, yeah. Yeah, a blurb from a letter from James Tiptree Jr. to Ursula K. Le Guin about how much he loves Bunch, which feels like Mozart and Beethoven writing about how they yeah. like Frank from the pub.
0: Yeah, so of course, uh, James James Tiptree is also a pen name um, of Alice Bradley Sheldon, and I actually want to read her quote later, because it encapsulates what I love about Bunch really well, obviously, because she was a fantastic author, um, and, and the list goes on. He was also published by, he was on New Wave, um, sorry, on Dangerous Visions, the New Wave anthology by Harlan Ellison, um, and so on. So and modern itself is very tricky because it's a series of, some of them are flash fiction because they're only a few pages long. Some of them are short stories because they're longer. Maybe one of them can be considered a novella, the first one, perhaps, um, first in chronologically, not in order of publication. And they were published in magazines. And this is at least 100 stories between 1957 and 1997, which is three years before Bunch uh, passed away. Um, and there's literally no comprehensive bibliography. Like we don't have a list of all of them because so many of them were published exclusively in fanzines, magazines, um, digest, science fiction, magazines, and so on. So the tally is impossible, basically, which adds a sheen to it. And, and beyond the meta details of the work, the work itself is just incredibly unique and ideal so i before before i shut up i just want to read the the tip three quote uh from a letter to ursula leguin a mean treat of long felt bunch was one of the most undersung and ill-known landmarks in science fiction oh what intensity at the focus what idiosyncrasy what a one roaring diamond glimpse
1: It's fucking beautiful.
0: It's amazing. Like she's I mean, it, also it, a fantastic
1: author. Yeah, I would say it's like it's no shock that someone who has such a great um because the classic for those of you who haven't read any uh Tip Tree the the classic thing for her work um and another person I literally didn't know it was the pen name of a woman until I was like in oh, yeah? college it yeah no I just <laughs> yeah. I, I I'd read the works because it was always just on the shelf with all the other sci fi and and fantasy and stuff yeah. but I never looked into it until I was in college and, um, same thing happened to me with George Eliot. Um, (laughs) I'm a digress, even though that one's very famous as a pen name, but whatever. Um, (laughs) it's fun to be a moron sometimes. Um, yeah, her, her sort of claim to fame was this like remarkably translucent and, and beautiful prose, um, write about the most boring stuff on earth and make you just riveted to it because the words are so beautiful. Um, yeah. Uh, a bunch does not do that. Bunch oh, writes so, like a fucking psychopath.
0: He's <laughs> Or like he, so, a guy
1: that's recently been electrocuted.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> we use the adjective feverish a lot on the cast. And I think it started when we did the vol that Alan Moore described as feverish. And I was like, that's a really good adjective a book. This is not a fever. I really agree with what you just said. Someone who's just been electrocuted or shot. Right? Like he's been shot and he's babbling like while blood is seeping out of his wounds so l- let me set the stage. humanity has finally fucked everything up like there's been one big blow up wall and it's it's not called climate change because it's nineteen fifty seven and only the big oil corporations and the White House know about climate change and then they proceed to lie to us for forty years um, That's right. but it is also about pollution and stuff like that like we destroy the planet for that so we find a very simple solution we cover the whole thing in plastic we just we just cover it up in plastic and then we can control everything including the fake plants the fake birds the fake weather and to populate itself, we choose the very best of the surviving humanity and we just fuck them up. Like, we do cyborg shit to them, but don't think, you know, like this sleek, ghost-in-the-shell, transhumanist thing. Think Robocop, right? <laughs> like, we tear them apart, we take out their lungs, we, we melt down their bones, we put iron in and silicone and, and sensors and all that shit. until the...
1: You almost want to think like Battle Angel Alita, where it's like you turn a guy yeah. into a mountain tank.
0: Yeah. Like, it's like, at the how end do you day, move?
1: It's like, well, anytime I feel pain, the treads move. It's like, oh, Jesus. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so here you're like a homunculus inside of this, essentially like an a mech suit or an exoskeleton, but it's your body that you are piloting around. Like you need to press a button in order to speak because it's a speaker. I, like it's literally just a speaker with a microphone. Um, and we take those people... Yeah. Some of the other normal people have survived because the guys running things aren't quite as psychopathic as to just kill everyone. And they live for a long time, the normal guys. Like, there's there's very little disease and we can extend their life. But the the cyborg guys, the strongholds, as they're known, they're immortal. And everything and and anything that they do is, is is war, right? They use their, like, automated armies, completely robotic, to try to bomb each other into the Stone Age, basically. And of course they can't. They're like locked in this endless war that cannot be won. But those who win the most, that is blow up the most stuff and be the most brutal and efficient and so on, they get to be the big man around town. When they don't do that, (laughs) this episode is very explicit. They uh, fuck robot mistresses and um, quarantine their actual human wives uh, because the procedure is mostly done on men but can also be done on women. They quarantine them in a place called White Witch Valley because they're so fucking scared of them and what they might do. Um, And they spend their days like worrying about what happens if they ever get out. Now, if this all sounds insane, you have no fucking idea. Um, I want to read to you a paragraph, because, as uh Tiptree uh, said very uh, uh correctly, the idiosyncrasy of this book cannot be described. This book sounds like no other book you have ever read. I am reading from one Time a Red Carpet, which is the third or the second story in the collection published by um, the New York Review of Books. Thank you by the way, for doing this and collecting this into one uh one volume. Um here we go. Are you ready? Is this is I awoke this the blood the light paragraph? Of a gleaming ten. No, no, it's not the blood paragraph. We'll do the blood paragraph later when we talk about like the body horror aspects of this. Um <laughs> okay. I awoke to the light of a gleaming 10. The sharp rays from the great numeral kicked my face hard and whammed me up to consciousness there where I lay on the plastic, surrounded by my equipment and the several maps and instructions gaudy night arms on a small face of my wrist base eternatel proclaimed that it was not yet midnight so it was still the seventh day of great august my day of days in my month of months the time i began the battle and now to move into a new phase clothed in steel and ready ready the bedlam ripping and screaming i hove in close plop plip plop plop over the homeless track had ever a king moved in more ignominiously on his birthday, had ever a king on any day moved in more determinedly or with better armor to last him for the long fray, the armor was I in this case, new metal, the bulk of my bodily splendor, with flesh strips few and played down. This is how the entire book reads So, so this guy that we follow, he's a fucking asshole, like
1: he is sucking he's, like, <laughs> he's like
0: he's like what what the fuck am i mussolini plus captain kirk right and that like kind of like rapey everybody wants to have sex with me kind of vibe um yeah. plus like i don't fucking know genghis khan in it's like insatiable lustful conquest is just an asshole and the problem is they're all assholes these are the only people who are left alive or have any power and they run the world. And literally all they do is blast each other into, um, not even death, just a stupid standstill. It's want to about most... the blood paragraph?
1: Well, in, in a minute, I want to talk first about how, so yeah. like this guy does, um, he writes with what I would call, uh, idiot strength and idiot fury. Um, I mean yeah. that in a in quite literally a complimentary way. It's sort of like uh, when you watch, say like uh, Eric Andre or Aqua Teen Hunger Force or something like that, where there's a kind of psychotic fury that it's hammering you with. Like these aren't really jokes. They're not like, they're not like wittily constructed. It's just something so insane presented, presented with such intensity or like the humor of something like Phantom from like a, a musical background or, Mr. Bungle would, would be another one, where it's just these psychotic blasts that make you burst out into a weird nervous laughter. Um, part of that that I mean, this guy is so goddamn on the nose. If you take your finger and you cover up the A, the name is uh, Modern. Um, I guarantee that was on <laughs> purpose. Because again, if, if you think about... Of after the launch of nuclear weapons everyone tries to cover the planet in plastic and then wage perpetual war with each other from their uh, immortal war rooms he's literally talking about the 1950s and 1960s like, like 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 literally like it's just it's just the 1950s and 1960s but he does it yep. with such psychotic power that like it's it's the world's most obvious metaphor he's talking about the way that um because uh, he's ecologically aware and he's talking about how the rise of the age of plastics and also thermonuclear war in the age of anxiety, or the the sort of post-globalist um like geopolitical tensions that ripple across the world and how we think about even now, like with with the war in the Ukraine, before his war in Syria, things like that, the perennial tensions between America and Russia, that you have these people in their in their bunkers, like two miles below the ground, planning the war that will kill everyone but them. And it's like he does the the thing that fantasy and sci-fi is the best at, and and horror when it taps into this is, which is you take a metaphor that is so painfully on the nose, you don't you don't let literary ambition let you pull any punch whatsoever, and then you do. You take it 100% literally. I mean, that's it's literally what made Philip K. Dick great. Because yeah. similarly, all of his novels are like the metaphors th- thump you on the nose until they break it um, and until your shirt's covered in blood. Like they are not subtle, but it is it is that lack of subtlety that gives them this like profound verve. And then you I combine think it's that also with
0: both in the case. Yeah. But... You one. I was just going to say that in the case of of philip and also of bunch it's also this idea that they're more daring than you like they'll take the metaphor one step further yeah. than you thought they were going to take it right like no i posited the world where the nixons the Kenned, Can- not the kennedys that's not what i meant to say the nixons the johnsons that's what i meant to say the patents all these like the, the Clint Eastwoods, right? All these like blusterous men that talk about the glory of war and the conquest of women and all that stuff. I imagine the world where technology made them omniscient and omnipotent and they just do nothing with it. And I will take that to the conclusion that is begged by the metaphor because I am describing our reality and you need to understand how bad things are. So, like, one of the things that I like the most is that this guy, there's one story where he wants to see beauty. So he goes down to the place where they control the birds um, because he thinks he will see the birds launching, right? Because they have these, like, time cycles for the migration of the birds because everything is plastic, right? But what he doesn't understand is that a few levels of ridiculousness. One, it's not actual birds. All the birds are drones. And two the launches aren't actually about beauty. They train the missile defense system <laughs> of the strongholds by throwing objects at them so that they can try to shoot them down. And he like leaves empty-handed and incredibly frustrated because he couldn't see beauty with a capital B. And and, and Bunch is saying, look at this. This is what these people actually are. Not in the future. Like This is what all those blusterous men you see on TV, this is what they're like. They're, they wouldn't know anything beautiful if it hit them on the face because their hearts are empty they've replaced it with iron and warfare and
1: he he even captures the like the the villainous poisonous like anxiety at the core of these people because like notably the person who turns into stronghold 10 uh which again the metaphor that that hits you so forcefully that the people are the bunker Um, The people are the missiles at one point, which is also psychotic, Um, but that they still yearn and crave like people, but they have so deluded themselves into thinking where they can find it or the level of control they have over these things that when their methods that they created to assuage their own anxieties, because the primary driving anxiety of Stronghold 10 is the existential reality of death which we met theorists since time immemorial have posited that reactionary thought comes from either direct or refracted death anxiety, that it's like, if I can acquire more power, more control, more oppression, then I can guarantee that I have the resources I need and the safety I need to live and survive. And that it like it roots not from a desire to do harm, but from the way harm can come from paranoia, hyperbolic self-interest. Um, But it even paints it like that drives them. They hit the wall where it doesn't give them what they want. And their response is to get grumpy and shoot missiles at each other and immediately just go like, uh, I decided to turn my aggression outwards and go back to war.
0: And and take pride in that war. Right. I think he also ridicules this idea that there's anything worthwhile at war that some sort of glory or honor can be found on the field of battle, especially in the modern era. Again, he writes after World War II, where he's like, what is there to be proud of here? Like, we went to this continent and we completely destroyed it and burned it to the ground, and now we're supposedly, you know, hailing ourselves as heroes and saviors. Of course, nuclear weapons, um, interestingly enough, the first story of this was published one year after Anyara, that we've mentioned before on, on the cast that was also concerned with nuclear warfare. and it's very which is very on hulu by the way everybody the nuclear... I... <laughs> oh, sorry i just i've been hulu. oh my god
1: i've been looking for it for literally since you mentioned it and i found it on hulu recently so anyone in america and i think britain it's on hulu for us
0: you have to you have to watch it anyway um so and we have to cover the the the, the poem anyway so he 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 puts to to ridicule this idea that there's anything left to salvage from war because in order to wage it and to wage modern war, oh, sorry, modern war, um, you have to literally rip apart your body in order to perform it. And this is where the body horror comes in. Remember when I mentioned Robocop? Um, That was... (laughs) an understatement uh maybe if robocop was like extreme r-rated and and like was a snuff film where you saw the guy being taken apart this what if robocop and judge
1: dread became one guy (laughs)
0: Yeah, exactly. So remember when I read there was that part where he talked about how the flesh strips are <laughs> played down? He keeps saying that. That's that's like one of his idioms. And if you think about what he means, it's like there are little parts of flesh still left inside of the sideboard, and that's the flesh strip. What a fucking horrible noun to put after flesh um, that's still like the biological parts of him. Uh, but it goes way beyond that. In the second story, which sees our <laughs> protagonist become the stronghold there is a certain paragraph um, that i would like to read to you uh, so this guy is going under the operation that makes him the uh, stronghold um and it goes like this oh sure there were deadeners pain deadeners right but never quite enough always just on the edge of all the hurt you could take clamped down in a stark white bed in a cold blue room and watching from a box of glass that separated your head from the rest of you. The box of glass being very clear for viewing, and with the size slot for your neck, fitting quite snugly and putting your head in a still, still world of its own. To watch the pain. Do you like to watch pain? The surgical refinements poised above you, high on ceiling tracks, and the not-quite-human doctors working the buttons and smirking, and you wondering where it would fall, oh god, where would it next fall? and it falling and bringing up blood, always the blood, and a part of you and holding that part of you for the too long time just right for you to observe through the box of glass, the blood dripping, always the blood, and when it came time for the move up to head, they made that move, planned the points and edges adjustments, changed the tracks, got settings so right on the nose precisely right that the gleaming knives would fall, and thus they made the move up there to do my head to work on the face flesh strips the brain slosh pans and the green brain fluids the knives falling and flicking and snicking like cold silver rain in that area of former sanctuary stillness where the glass box had been did i see it did i see it they flashed it all almost realer than real on a wall viewer And the only part I didn't get to see all the way at the doing was the doing over of the eyes when they gave me that miraculous wide-range modern eyesight. But I heard that all on the provided screen. This is the worst part. Knives in the left side eye socket. Knives in right side eye socket. Coring out left side eyeball now. Coring out right side eyeball now. And folks, there's blood. Don't think there isn't blood comes up and out when you call eyeballs. Always the blood.
1: Um, this man has problems, <laughs> and he needs help badly.
0: So, thank you for alioping that to me because his problem is what it feels like to be alive in the modern world, right? Yeah, and he wrote this in the fucking fifties. He saw it all coming. That's how it feels to step outside, right? Everything is attacking you. Advertisements, other people, uh, cars and their noise, billboards, People rushing to and fro. Now with the the epidemic, right? People with masks, people without masks, coughing. All the threats that you're constantly under. I don't know in Israel, right? Like you walk to us to a, a shopping uh, center and you're like, "Is this the day that I get that I die?" Right? Because my government decided to be murderous, genocidal, apartheid assholes. Um, or you're afraid of being in a school shooting or some or, or just a mass shooting yep. somewhere. Like you're under attack and you're seeing it. It's on display because when you come back, you turn on the TV or you open your computer and it's all there for you. The taking a part of your own body, of your own head is constantly being beamed back to you over the media that we consume. If that paragraph feels psychotic, it's because living in this fucking period and this era is psychotic. It's a psychotic experience. And Bunch This Reminds... I, I hope oh, the left to read this, right? I was just gonna say, I hope Deleuze got to read this.
1: Yeah, it's it we're 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 definitely gonna touch on that part. Um
0: there is <laughs> there's a
1: novel by a guy named Richard Carina called Been Down So Long It Looks Like Up to Me. It's um a sixties college novel. Um if you are into literary fiction or the the fiction of uh America in the mid-century, you'll inevitably run into it. It was written by like a little um, a wunderkind who died in his twenties, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah, twenty nine. It was the only novel that he wrote. Um, I mention it because it put into prose style what we saw in the Beats uh, when it came to poetry. So w- things like Howl and and whatnot, uh, turning that into this uh, ramshackle, half psychedelic like college novel just navigating, having these weird experiences, bouncing around. There's no real plot per se. Um and that's sort of what marks it is different from uh the guy who wrote On the Road, um, whose name I'm forgetting, who watched William Burroughs this murderous wife. Um I, I mention that because this book feels like if you took been down so long it looks like up to me, took Howl and took Naked Lunch and uh blended it through and let that let that like um meat slurry invent cyberpunk in the fifties, and that that yeah, kind of the uh you go on,
0: I was just gonna say that the I think there's like a slight delay by the way, so apologies for that um the cyberpunk reference is really interesting because the idea of like leaning onto your idiosyncratism in order to create your style is very much, maybe I just described cyberpunk in one sentence, right? This idea of the language and the terminology and the hacker lingo. that I forget where William Gibson took. It was like some sort of scene in the States, I think, that he kind of borrowed the, the terminology from. But this is in 57. And it basically does like cyberpunk, which is in many ways present in this novel right cyborgs um advanced weaponry a grim future all that stuff it does it like what 25 30 years before gibson writes Neuromancer. it's it's absolutely astonishing and i think because of how astonishing it is because of how unique it is and because of how you said it like it's crass right it's very exaggerated that's why it found no audience and like even Contemporary writers of the period they were disgusted by it. Right, Vandermeer mentions it in the foreword to this edition. He says that many many people said that it was it was uh, nauseating to them. right? like to read this, but of course it was because he was holding up a fucking mirror to their face. Right, he was saying this is who you are. This is the people that you adore and admire. Right, and um, it's it's really. I don't know. I'm losing words, right? Because it's it's like a lightning bolt. This book. It, it's like being struck re- by lightning.
1: It reminds me of all of my. Fa- so the more you get into art in general, the more you get certain things. So heavy metal was created by Black Sabbath in 1969 with the creation with their debut record, Black Sabbath. I mentioned this. <laughs> Eden knows where I'm going. He's twisting in his seat because anyone who who listens to a lot and writes a lot about metal knows this you go that's not really true that may be the that may be the point that we can go heavy metal definitively exists right this second but then you start going back and you find all these other things and you go like oh you know there's blue cheer there's vanilla fudge there's mountain there's all these other um even get certain things like i put a spell on you yeah similarly you know it's like oh um, King Crimson made Prague in 1969 with, uh, in the court of the Crimson King. And you go back and you go, oh, that's not really true. Like the electric prunes, you have Procol Harem, you have, uh, uh, like days of future past, um, from the Moody Blues, you have all these other things. Um, you even have certain bits from the Beach Boys that, you know, all this kinds of stuff. Similarly, when it comes to like the literary tradition, you can put a pin in something and go, this is the creation of whatever. And those things get parroted in mostly pop space outside of those scenes, because we're picking the thing that if I hand it to you is maybe the earliest example that gives you all the tools you need to know about something. But inadvertently, we're also saying this is the thing that gave birth to the scene, but not the first we're not really saying this is the first example that ever exists historically. This is where we also get like, is the birth of the novel, the first novel that was written or the first novel that made other people want to write and read novels, that kind of thing. And it's always fascinating for, for people like me and for people like Eden and for people like, it's like there's people like us to, because it's the most natural philosophical question if this isn't the first, what comes before it that that presages it? Um, And like, what was it in its native context? Like, this is what Nietzsche was to Deleuze, of someone who was like, he's writing very aptly, but he was writing in the 1800s about contemporary concerns inadvertently. And likewise, Deleuze basically became that. We needed to wait until the cybernetic age of, of the era of the internet To really go, oh, now his stuff makes intuitive sense. It isn't just like it works in theory. You go, oh shit, I know from my lived experience what he's talking about. We see that in experimental electronica, which lived in the world of academia in the 40s and 50s and early 60s, and was considered an intensely bourgeois thing. And now you have like avant-garde experimental hip-hop and electronica being made in like tenements, it was just fantastic. Like, that. that's that's what you want to see in art is, like, it becomes this lightning bolt for the people. And just grabbing a hold of something like this, knowing that it was sharing space with, like... Knowing that it was sharing space with people like uh, Isaac Asimov, uh, wh- who were writing pretty pretty traditional science fiction. Very good science fiction. I love Asimov. I think everyone who likes science fiction does. But... Like, this doesn't even feel... This feels as different from the new wave of science fiction people that it would share space with as they felt towards the the Golden Age. Like, I can see the sharing space with Ballard, but Ballard... Ballard? Ballard? Why did I say it that way? Uh, I can see it sharing space <laughs> with Ballard, but Ballard writes like like if Kathy Acker wanted to write a science fiction novel, but it still lives far more in that, like Kathy Acker um, kind of space, which is fantastic. Again, another brilliant author. Um, Bunch literally, it quite literally feels like someone at who loves golden age science fiction at a, uh, at a typewriter during a psychotic or schizotypal episode. I say this as someone who's had a psychotic episode before and has jotted um, batshit things down in the midst of that. Like, this feels like this man is fraying at the the seams, like, onto the page, which is just this wild energy that you do not get from science fiction of that era. Even the New Wave people didn't have that kind of level of, like, I am melting like a candle energy.
0: Yeah, I think... The last element that I want to bring to bear here, and then we can do music and, and close this off, is the fact that this book or these, these stories are also a future history, We yeah. write Very much in the tradition of telling stories about deep time and far future. So is this collection a dying earth collection? It could also be asked. And again, contemporary of, Vance and Gene Wolfe and, and others, Harlan Allison and others who dabbled within the channel that we covered a few episodes ago. Um, but but more than that, I want to posit and present Moderan as the ultimate Robert Heinlein killer. Because this is basically what Heinlein <laughs> was trying to do
1: <laughs> oh, it, it just hit me what you're saying right now. Yeah, keep keep going. I'm loving this.
0: So because this is not only exactly what Heinlein was trying to do with Lazarus, not, not no trooper. time for love. And starship. So wait, wait. The first one is the future history stuff, right? Like Sons of Metushelach and all that stuff. So it destroys that. But then it also turns around and destroys Starship Troopers, right? Like, it does Starship Troopers better than Starship Troopers. And, let's get this. It does Stranger in a Strange Land better than Stranger in a Strange Land. Because it does exactly that. Where am I? I'm out of time. I'm out of space. I'm dislocated. I don't know where I am. I see the world differently than others. How should I deal with this? Maybe I shouldn't deal with this. Maybe I should repress it. It just basically takes the entire Heinlein catalog and does... How many levels of science fiction are you on? Oh, four or five? You are like a little baby. Watch this (laughs) one whole paragraph about blood pouring out of eye sockets and and brain fluids and shit. Like, this book is a masterpiece. So this collection, this career, and then you think about, like, how he was able to maintain it. So if you read some of the later stories, they're just as good. Like, he was able to maintain this drive, this creative vision, this this idiosyncrasy, this language for like almost 50 years, 43 years. It is absolutely astonishing. And it's honestly, forget the crime. It's just a shame that people are not more familiar with this. Um, And hopefully with this edition and Vandermeer's forward and his work to push it um, in New York Review of Books, this could get to more readers like us, right? We knew nothing about this until it was published in this form because it really is just, outstanding it's like up there with the best most inventive and just most unique and uncompromising science fiction that i have read um which is amazing
1: it makes perfect sense to me that most of these stories are so short and that he wrote it over such a long period of time because thinking as so Uh, One of the other things that links Eden, Gareth, and I is we're all writers. We have done different levels of trying to get published and successfully getting published, but we all... It's hard to get really into books and not dabble yourself, just sort of like it's hard to get into music and not pick up an instrument at some point. Um, I cannot imagine someone being in the headspace to compose this for basically longer than what he does, bit by bit. It's also it makes sense but it's fascinating that like he didn't write these in the chronological order that they appear in in this collection he was bouncing around and like filling in gaps throughout the entire span of him doing this of like circling back and going like no i want to add one little more thing about the wives and now i want to jump forward to the uh like the living war machines and now i want to go to the We didn't even talk about how technically this is a future history because it's a collection of stories found on beam tapes by people that have turned into uh, beams of energy that are broadcast from crystals on the North Pole. Like, we just skipped that because there's so many ideas in the book. And that's sort of the other thing is that, like, if science fiction is the genre of ideas... Um, not necessarily the genre of answers, not necessarily all these other things can be that, but mostly driven by ideas. This again, like Philip k. dick is like every every paragraph feels like a new a new gem, and he just he just skips past it he he has so little value of any of his own inventions, but in that in the way that like. Again, the way it feels like creative geniuses are where it's like, oh, I have a million more of these. I can hand you a bag full of diamonds and not blink because I have a vault behind me. And you're like it it's it's like it's gob stopping. <laughs> and like uh yeah. like you were mentioning, like the um one of the great thrills of this show is researching new and interesting books to go to and especially not necessarily being held to necessarily contemporary literature just trying to find like what are some really um this reminds me of basically the way i felt the first time i read philip k dick or italo calvino or Borges or something like that like so again if you know me you know that those are very big names for me up uh, but it's that same level of like it feels like you're reading fabular level inventiveness but with this uh like like what if uh an avant punk or like avant-garde heavy metal <laughs> band uh had to write uh like a collection of Italo calvino short stories like it just when Eden pitched yep. this to me, he was, "I found something, Langton. We're canceling what we were planning to do. Well, we're not going to tell you what we were planning to do because we might wind up doing it still in the future." But he was like, "We're canceling that. We're doing this instead." And I'm like, "What's that?" Yes, immediately. Yes. Oh my God. Eden,
0: yes. Like. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So again, we didn't um, even talk well, about then... how to
1: lose. Wait. Wait. I have one last note because it's the thing that I was telling you I wanted to cover before but, we yeah, uh, made you, the episode. He-
0: uh, you, but you did the lose, though. You mentioned him. It's fine. You're you're free of your curse. Thank you, Eden. <laughs> I I have freed you, Langdon. It's okay.
1: I'm free. Oh, I entered the psychosis.
0: Yes. Okay. Lines of flight. Music. <laughs> Lines of flight. That's it. That's what I wanted to say. Lines of flight. Well, actually, that's a really good point, and we didn't even mention nomadic war machines and all that stuff. Um that we we could literally go on we didn't say we didn't say Nietzsche Nietzsche is here we didn't say a bunch of other stuff that we could have said um it, 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 just read Moderan. okay uh David Arbanch yeah. Bunch Modern. get the New York Review of Books edition because it's fantastic um really cool cover as well really good yeah. uh like the quality of the edition and everything I'm Paper. holding it in my hand Paper. right now waving it around I'm having fun yeah <laughs> um okay now let's talk about music um I have for you a band from the UK called Toucan, T-O-U-C-C-A-N, like the bird. Is it a parrot from the parrot family? I don't know. Maybe. looks like a parrot. Anyway. Um, so these guys do mathy screamo rock, but not as we know it, Jim. Like if I say those words and you think about a certain thing, like this kind of like brighton based or birmingham as well u k bright scintillating instrumental Matthew postdoc this is not what this sounds like. it has um really heavy parts really doomy parts for some reason punk influences and just an edge to it and like a versatility to it that is really really rare to find um, in these kinds of of bands. But if you're fans of um, all the bands operating around Small Pond Records and what's that other label called? Big Scary Monsters. All of those like Southern UK um, vibes, but you want something more full-throated, full-throated, sorry, and not as um, fragile, but more muscular and energetic, then this is for you. The album is called Full Sentimental brilliant name for an album um yeah. was released july 8th of of this year and it has track names like silky walrus um and a new way a new name for some old ways of thinking and so on um but i am going to play you command that Costo, i hope i pronounced that correctly fantastic Stop. little track that has some of those doom influences yeah I, Cousteau, maybe yeah I, CO. something i think
1: is it's worth yeah, noting okay. about this, because I'm looking at it as well, is uh, only uh, only four uh, songs are in titled in the same language. And it's that two of them are in English and two of them are in French. Every other one is in a completely different language.
0: Yeah. And also the tracks are shorter gonna... than you would expect on a release like this.
1: Just like... Um, I haven't heard this record. This yeah. is definitely going to be one that I'm putting on as well.
0: It's it's very good. So here is Tukan with commandant Custod.